HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit Michter's.com to find out how their taste-is-everything, cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I am just ecstatic today. I'm so happy. We have a real uh, legend of the drinks industry here with us today. We have Dale DeGroff, uh, who's going to be on with us. He is a James Beard Award winner, the author of Craft of the Cocktail and The Essential Cocktail. In Craft of the Cocktail, the book, it's, uh, it's something that Everyone should have, whether you're a professional bartender, a new bartender, a home bartender. It's just uh, a, a fan, they're, they're both fantastic, um, but just, uh, I think, required reading. Um, also um, has his uh, Pimento Aromatic Bitters, uh, bev- is uh, one of the guys behind the Beverage Alcohol Resource, which uh, is uh, professional um, of the top-level bartender training, and I would love to uh, do that one day. And I'm sure, Dale, you have your hands in many other things as well that I don't know about, but uh, I, so, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, welcome to In the Drink. Well, Joe, thank you for all the kind words. I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, it, it's really uh, really exciting. You know, I have to read one of our uh, <laughs> one of our producers found this quote um, that Anthony Bourdain said about you. I'm sure you know it well, but uh, <laughs> Anthony Bourdain, uh, you know, someone who we're, we're all big fans of, wrote uh, or said about Dale. He alone is responsible for more people having sex than Barry White, Frank Sinatra, and Quaaludes combined. Holy <laughs> cow! <laughs> Uh, I guess it just speaks I think to Anthony has writers working for him, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe gave him a few too many drinks. <laughs> and uh, uh, well, anyway, as I said, su- super excited to have you on the show. Were you? Uh, I-, I know that uh, a-, a bunch of people in New York just got back from the tales of the cocktail down in uh, New Orleans. Uh, did you make it down there this year? Yeah, I've I've been there every year. I'm, I had a full plate. I had a great time. It was one of the best. Fantastic. And what what did you uh, what were some of the things that that came out of it this year? What did you notice? Were there any trends, um, things that people are really highlighting? Well, you know, I'm I'm honestly uh, 
Well, first of all, I have to tell you that the the the, the art and craft of of creating really good tasting drinks for in excess of 300 people over and over again several times a day has really been mastered. <laughs> the um, there there were more there were the apprentices, the apprentices of course who work under the under the uh, guidance of of uh, Don Lee and uh, uh, I hate getting old because I lose names a lot and his partner whose name will come to me shortly uh, and then there are the other folks private companies like uh, Will Shine who has his own company who are hired in, independently by the larger liquor companies to do their uh, large batching and prepping and I, I, I think this is an, a real skill and I and Tails has made several people in the industry were very, very good at that skill of, of making craft cocktails for, for large groups of people. I was delighted to see that. Um, because you can't just take a, a cocktail recipe and multiply it by 100 or 300 and expect it to come out uh, exactly the same. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. I did a work. dinner at Ruth's Chris, as I have done for the last four years, and each year uh, I've been sponsored by Paranoia Ricard, and each year... I've been given the task of working with a single spirit, uh, tequila, vodka, gin. This year was vodka, and I was kind of delighted that I was 18 months after Nick Strangeway had come out with his elixir flavors for Absolute because it gave me a, a much broader palate to work with. His, his smoky tea and his lemon and his sour cherry were really special, and they, they, they fit nicely into the dinner. But I noticed, and I have noticed for years and years of batching, because I've been doing this for a long, long time. I started doing cocktail dinners in 1993 at the Rainbow Room in New York City, and I, I, I was faced with it right away because I was slammed with 160 people on the first cocktail dinner I did. And I noticed quickly that especially when you're adding the sour element, mm -hmm. if you multiply the sweet and the sour element out by the number of people, you're in for a surprise because the sour element seems as you get above 15 or 10 or even, even, even above 10 drinks starts to have a larger impact. So what I do now is I multiply it out, but I put in only two-thirds of the sour that I believe I need by multiplication, and then I add to taste until it gets right, because the sour element inevitably can overpower if you just multiply out, extrapolate out those exact recipe. It never works. That, I mean, that's, that, that's great. I wish, I wish you told well, me Like that. ginger or yeah. anything mm -hmm. that's intense, mm -hmm. you really need to make that uh, amount, uh, diminish that amount, and then only add it to taste to the batch, and you'll be much more successful. That that's that's brilliant. I, I wish that I had, I had that information uh, years ago before I had done my first uh, event. <laughs> uh, and it makes sense too because citrus is is variable. Uh, we just saw a big scourge of the of lime where the prices went up and the quality went down and and certainly it's completely variable in intensity as well. Because if you have a real rainy season, then it's going to mm -hmm. be a lot less intense. I mean, there's there's just no way to get around it. And, and speaking of information, I wish I'd had a lot of information when I was 23 years old. <laughs> that, that was the reason behind Craft of the Cocktail. I thought, I want to write a book which would would have been the book that I needed when I was 23 years old and trying to get into this business and having no one to turn to, except older bartenders who taught me tremendous things, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. 
I learned how to, I wouldn't have had it any other way than to have Irish bartenders like Pat and Mike at Charlie O's and Rockefeller Center teach me how to handle a, a busy bar because they were geniuses at it. But learning how to make fresh fruit sours was not going to, it was not information I was going to get from them, but and, it, and it, what it what was it that I'm you so learned from them? This route. Yeah. What did you learn more of the uh, the hospitality aspect, the the managing your time and efficiency of movement, as opposed to actually uh, these making guys were just masters. They were masters. I mean, they had such control over their bar. They were they were everything they needed to be at exactly the moment they needed to be at. And you're exactly right. They never moved from one spot to another without accomplishing three tasks. And they were having conversations with, with customers up and down the bar simultaneously. They were just masters of, uh, of, of, uh, of diplomacy, of multitasking, of, of uh, character assessments <laughs> on, on, on the fly, of solving problems that seemed insurmountable that could lead to real problems and solving them in ways that were and at the same time they were respected by their customers because they had a certain gravity gravitas about them it was just a, a it was a pleasure to watch mm-hmm. yeah and what what were the the main cocktails in in those days what were the the most popular drinks well obviously people were drinking uh, manhattans and martinis of mm-hmm. course uh, to be to be honest with you, Scotch and Rocks, uh, Vodka on the Rocks, Sea Breeze, Shore Breeze, Bay Breeze, Salty Dog, uh, uh, Golden Cadillac, um, Long Island Iced Tea. Uh, you weren't going to get much beyond that. Whiskey Sours, but you know, the, the sours were, were diminishing in popularity because the sour mix made most of the sours taste the same uh, in the sense that the, the last flavor on your tongue was always that, that mix, you know. And not not the spirit or the base spirit. So by then, fresh fruit drinks had diminished. And the, only, the closest you could get to fresh, fresh fruit drinks were screwdrivers and sea breezes and bay breezes and stuff like that, yeah. and, and, and Cape Codders. And that's, that's what folks drank when I started in the business. We're drinking. And then, of course, things like Presbyterians and, you know, whiskey highballs. And highballs were very popular. <laughs> Hard to mess them up. And it seems that... Uh... That some of these drinks really have some do have some staying power, uh, certainly the Martini and, and the Manhattan. What, what do you think it is about about those classics that just really aren't aren't going anywhere? Well, the the, the names are, are are spectacular. Number yeah. one, there's there there are three very uh, distinct and aggressive ingredients that are put together in a, in a balanced way. In, in terms of the Manhattan and the Martini, uh, the, the triumvirate seems to be the key here, and I use the triumvirate in the Martini in the sense that the original Martinis almost all had bitters in them also, for at least from mm-hmm. the turn of the, of the 19th to the 20th century. And, of course, prior to the 19th to the 20th century, you know, Martinis could have upward of six ingredients in them. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I think the concept of a... Uh, a base whiskey and a base gin drinks, two of the of the classic bases, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with with these, um, you know, with with bitters as a. I mean, bitters was a was a, a fantastic invention, invention go, going all the way back to the days of punches. We we uh, we here and most folks in in the new world, even if you go back to colonial times. They really didn't have the, the uh, and I'm sure if you've read David Wondrich's punch book, you've, you've been illustrated this 
quite uh, 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 better prose than I can supply. But um, the, the, the punch was really the property of the upper classes in Europe, especially in the United Kingdom, because it needed spices and it needed citrus juice, and those things were really hard to get mm-hmm. in New England <laughs> in colonial times, unless you were, you know, uh, you had serious uh, money, and also at certain times of year, citrus was just frankly impossible to get. So they, that's why they that's why they resorted to the to the vinegar shrub. And I, I, I caution bartenders who use vinegar shrubs in place of, of citrus shrubs that it was really an alternative. It wasn't the preferred shrub. It's difficult to make vinegar shrubs because the drink simply ends up tasting like vinegar, and it puts a lot of people off. <laughs> so I would go very gently into that territory, very carefully into that territory. But what I'm getting at is when they invented bitters and created the cocktail category, you know, strong spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters, also known as a bittered sling, slings were, of course, poor man's punches. They were sugar, strong spirits of any kind, and water. And they, you'll notice that the acid and the spice are missing because they were expensive. <laughs> but when they invented bitters, a much less expensive product that had all the very expensive spices already in them, you could dash it into this bitter, into this sling and, and turn it into a, a rich man's punch, in a sense. And that became our cocktail because we served it by the individual glass. So I, I don't know what this has to do with your original question. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's, it took me down a road here. You know, my, my mind trace, I have so many thoughts based on just what you, what you said. I mean, I think that the whole idea here, whether it's the, the citrus or, or vinegar or, or bitters, is uh, creating a balanced uh, cocktail, something to balance out the, the sweetness and, and showcase the, 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 the spirit in it. And I, I am seeing, I'm, I'm sure you're seeing shrubs all over the place. I feel like shrub is, is something that, that uh, is really becoming more popular. And, uh, and I, I agree, uh, even with, with our bartenders and, you know, in our restaurants, they're getting very excited about these, these shrubs. And I, I think it's also nice way you can really extract some good fruit flavor, um, out of it without getting that like citrus, uh, that citrus acid. Um, but let's talk about bitters. Uh, let's talk especially about bitters because bitter is a, a word that I think, when we first opened Delanima seven years ago, I think really repulsed a lot of our uh, out, of, out of our guests. We I couldn't say the word bitter table side. I felt like you could see it would have a negative connotation table side. But now people, I, I'm noticing that people's tastes are starting to to change. Uh, we crave bitter a little bit more. Do you agree with this? And you're, you're, you speak with a lot more bartenders, and you, you're more well traveled than I am. Uh, do you see that going around around the country? Is is that true as a national taste? Well, there's, there's a lot of elements that come into this conversation. One of them is we've already warmed up to the idea of the food additive bitters because we've been using them in our martinis in Manhattan's for almost 150 years. So we we're not we're not afraid of that. We they don't stand out. They don't. Because bitters supplies two, it 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 it, it, um, it has two purposes. It has two two jobs to do in the recipe. Number one, it it's a it dries out. In other words, it will it will uh, take a sweet cocktail and make it more palatable because it has the same effect in a sense that lemon or lime juice has. It 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 blunts the sugar. Uh, and, and balances the drink. But it also comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with a lot of flavor. So depending on the kind of bitters you choose, you're going to be adding flavor and you're going to be drying the drink out. Um, 
the the other issue is beverage bitters. Beverage bitters we haven't quite warmed up to in this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking, you know, Unicum Campari, well, the Verna is sweet, uh, but still bitter. Uh, Fernet. I mean, you know, the first time somebody takes Fernet for their stomach, you know, they're they're, they're just aghast and, and, and they're so shocked at the flavor that they forget all about the pain in their stomach, <laughs> <laughs> which is how it works initially. <laughs> It did for me anyway, but we we grow up on soda pop and this you know we, mm-hmm. we we grow up with so much sweet things in our diet that when it, the idea of the bitter aperitivo the 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 preparation for dinner the bitter uh, uh, you know tall drink or, or or whatever is just very foreign to us and, and it's it's the problem has been um, exacerbated by a lot of young bartenders who don't know how to use bitter beverage bitters, uh, for example, the Negroni and the Americano. I mean, the Americano came around before the Negroni, and it was a tall drink with a lot of ice and a little bit of seltzer in it, and obviously Campari and sweet vermouth, and that was very approachable. And when Count Negroni and his famous conversation at the Cassoni Bar in Fiorenzi decided that it wasn't strong enough for him and he threw in the, the gin, it was still served over ice. And the Italians understand the bitter aperitivo. If you serve it over ice, the the initial uh, taste uh, is good, but the best taste is the one at the very end when all of the ingredients have been um, modified, softened by the uh, by the melting of the ice cubes mm-hmm. and the dilution. Whereas if you take a, a strong drink like a Negroni, which is gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari, and chill it and then put it in an up glass, the best taste will be the first one, and each successive sip will become more and more bitter as the spirit, as the drink warms up, because the bitterness will be highlighted by the, by the loss of the chill. You don't have any dilution to soften the bitterness. So serving Negronis up for an American audience is a really bad idea, (laughs) unless they're very sophisticated. And you know what? The sophisticated 2% who are part of this bartending community have to make drinks for the other 98% of those folks out there who are not part of this community and aren't into strong, stirred drinks. And if you're going to introduce them to something like Campari, you have to be very careful and subtle. <laughs> you know, it makes a lot in of your, sense to me. But personally, your, uh, I like my Negronis on the rocks if I'm having the Negroni before dinner. And if I'm having the Negroni after dinner, uh, I'll have it up. And uh, to me, this was just something that, that uh, was just intrinsic to me. I, I, this is just how I, how I liked it. Uh, and now what you're saying makes a lot more sense that that as it's warming up it becomes more bitter and then you have something that's more bitter that if it's intensely bitter then that to me that's an end of the meal if it's just slightly bitter uh and more refreshing then i can have that and then eat after that but for me the, the best the best drink is somewhere in between the americano and the negroni is the spagliato with uh with sparkling sparkling that's wine absolutely what i've done to save the negroni for for lots of customers who I tried to introduce to it, is to just sweep the drink back off the bar when they made that first grimace, <laughs> and add uh, add an ounce of orange juice and uh, a little Cointreau, shake it and and put it back out there, and it's much more palatable. Yeah. Oh, that sounds that sounds delicious. And how did you come about to make uh, to work on your own bitters, the pimento aromatic bitters? Well, I, I, at the Rainbow Room, I was 
dismayed at the loss of a very important ingredient, which I had for many, many years, all the way back to 1978, 1987 when we opened, and that was called uh, Ray and Nephew Pimento Dram Liqueur. Uh, Ray and Nephew Pimento Dram Liqueur uh, has since, well, it, it disappeared from our market, I want to say, 94, 90. Anyway, I was very uh, unhappy about that because I had actually used it as a spice in, in many of my drinks. My, my, my in-house rum punch, which I called Planter's Punch, which really wasn't any version of the Planter's Punch that you've ever seen before. It was more like a zombie. I used it in... Uh, in, in, in holiday drinks, both at Thanksgiving and Christmas, because it had all those baking spice notes in it. And the Bray and Nephew Pimento Dram of that era was quite intense. It was sweet, but it was really, really uh, concentrated. Um, I, I guess it went off the market and, and completely off the market for a while, and then when they started making it again, I'm not at all sure that they used the same original formula. I haven't tasted it, but some people tell me it's not as intense as it used to be. But that got me really thinking about having, missing this, this uh, allspice, you know. The, the whole idea of pimento, which is confusing to a lot of folks listening out there, they think, oh, pimento pepper. You know, and then, of course, if you're, if you're from the Hispanic uh, background, pimento means pepper. And uh, it could mean black pepper, it could mean red pepper, it just means pepper. And I, this goes back to the uh, original conquistadors and arriving in South America, the age of, uh, of uh, discovery when they were busily, you know, sending riches back to the old world. They, they saw the Indians, especially in, in the northern South America, northern countries like Venezuela, using these berries. Uh, they looked like peppercorns, and they were grinding them in their, into their food and drink, and so they, they naturally thought they were peppercorns, so they called them pimentos. When uh, John Ray, the botanist from, from uh, England, finally got around to collecting specimens and bringing them back to the U.K., and he experimented with allspice and realized that it had tremendous uh, 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 versatility, you know. It, it, had, it, it gave uh, uh, baking spice and, and, and even a slight anise notes and all kinds of different flavors were, were, were present in this allspice berry. And, he, and he, he exclaimed, oh, this is amazing. This is like allspices put together, you know. So allspice stuck in the English language as the word for this berry. Uh, so I used that, and I noticed when I was working for Angostura, I worked for them for several years when we opened the Rain Room in '87, because we were, we were, we looked like the savior for them because you know, uh, every bottle of Angostura bitters had been languishing for years behind bars because they weren't even using them in the Manhattan's, and you know, it was a, it was a disaster. Uh, and when they saw the the thing happening at the Rain Room with the dishes with tradition, the cocktails with tradition. The, they, they came to me and asked me if I would work with them to help educate bartenders about why they should be using their bitters, and so I did that for several years. And I went down to their grinding plant. I went down to their plant, and I got myself in the grinding room by mistake because we were taking a shortcut to the distillery, and they, they actually hustled me through. But I, do, I remember skating across the floor on allspice berries. <laughs> oh. So I know that there's a large... That's a large portion of the of the secret recipe of Angostura. I just filed that away, and so I decided that when I was going to try to recreate some of the flavors from the Ray and Nephew, I would I would I would focus ninety uh, percent of the flavor of my bitters on the allspice berry, and so it is in fact ninety percent whole allspice berries, and then some green anise and some uh, dried orange peel, uh, a slight bit of. Uh, of uh, Damarara sugar, and you'll notice that it has no sweetness perceptible like Angostura does. 
Angostura is actually an interesting story. I don't think it would pass the TTB these days as a food additive. It would be it would be uh, categorized as a beverage. Yeah, it's forty four percent alcohol or so, and and we can purchase it at well, the supermarket. They're all high alcohol. Yeah. It's the fact that it's so palatable. I mean, bartenders yes. do shots of Angostura, but they're oh, not going to be doing shots. Of <laughs> <laughs> Michter's Whiskey is a proud sponsor of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If you drink the whiskey that warmed General Washington's troops at Valley Forge, does that make you a patriot? Not necessarily, but it indicates you appreciate that Michter sets the standard for highest quality, limited production whiskeys. America's first whiskey distilling company, Michter's rich history dates back to 1753 when a farmer in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania, distilled his first batch of whiskey from Hardy Rye. At one point, a master distiller left his family's well-known distillery to join Michter's so he could be at a smaller, less cost-conscious company where he could make the finest whiskey, cost be damned. Ask your bartender or retailer for Michter's whiskey today. Chatham Imports is the national sales agent for Michter's Distillery. For more information, please visit www.michters.com. That's www.michters.com. And what's the, be- the best way to, uh, to utilize p- your pimento bitters? Say again? I'm what's sorry. the best way to use your pimento bitters? How, how have you found success using them? I originally, it in I, as I, uh, originally intended it to be you know, for rum punches and tiki-style okay. drinks because it's really intense, and you don't need very much of it, and you get a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, but then I started saying to myself, well, let me see how it works in some of the classic bitter uh, recipes. I put it first in a Sazerac, because a Sazerac, uh, as David Wondrich has finally discovered and authenticated, I always put Angostura and Peixotes in my, and I got, I got, you know, reamed down in New Orleans by the bartenders, who said, no, 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 you use Peixotes only. Well, David found uh, probably one of the earliest printed recipes from the late 19th century of the elusive Sazerac. And guess what? Even in New Orleans, where this, this uh, scrap of recipe paid from a newspaper uh, came, finally surfaced. Mm-hmm. If it's there, David will find it. It, in <laughs> fact, uh, called for both Angostura and Peixotes bitters, because Peixotes has that anise, slightly cherry note. Yes. But the baking spice note is also critical to me, to a great Sazerac. Uh, and that comes from, of course, the wood, you know, that the whiskey is aged and then the spices in the whiskey, but it also comes from the Angostura bitters. So I always use both of them. And then I decided to experiment with my bitters because my bitters has elements of anise and elements of baking spices mm-hmm. because I use green anise and I use allspice. And it, act, it acted uh, as sort of a combination bitters in, in the Sazerac, and it, and it worked very well. So then I started using it in Manhattan's. The only difference between my bitters and Angostura is you really have to use just about two or three drops, not dashes of my bitters, mm-hmm. because it is, it is the most extracted of all the bitters on the market, I think, in terms of, because we use a 30-day maceration of whole botanicals, and it's intense. It, Ted, <laughs> Ted Bro, my, my, my uh, partner, manufacturing partner, who makes some of the best absinthe in the world, is, is, is using his his knowledge from the absinthe world to make these bitters. He's using only whole botanicals, and he's using a much longer maceration period than a lot of young bitters makers are using. 
Well, I have to admit, I have not yet tried them, but I am uh, extremely excited. I've been I've been very interested in uh, tiki drinks at home. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to make a, a tiki Italian-ish cocktail crossover for one of the restaurants. And I think we might have come up with something at Del Anima with using a little like Luxardo Amaretto and Savorgiat, but but we'll see. Well, I'll 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 report back uh, and, and, and we'll let you know. And switching back over to to Dave, and you, you mentioned Punch before, and he, you know, talking about Jerry Thomas in, in his day, there wasn't. Uh, it, it seemed that bartenders at that time were extremely secretive, and um, a lot of the reason that we don't have a ton of information from the mid nineteenth century and, and early on, obviously there wasn't. A ton of stuff going on. The very, very early 19th century in terms of uh, of people making individual cocktails. But um, it was also that bartenders were, were secretive and they held their recipes close to their heart. They didn't publish them the way that, that Jerry Thomas did. Do you find that uh, today bartenders uh, are are more willing to share their, their... – Completely. Okay. Yeah. Completely. There, there, there is uh... – there's, there, there's, you know, there's friendly competition, obviously, but bartenders throw their recipes up online. They do, they're, they're, they're proud of them. They're happy to share them. Once in a while, there's a little spat because somebody doesn't give credit where credit is due, and that's just dumb. Um, if you throw things on your menu that are not yours, you should tribute, pay some tribute to the to the originator. I used to have something called tributes on my beautiful Rainbow Room menu with the beautiful graphics by Milton Glaser, and I would. I, I had a section from about 1995 till 1999. I had a section called Tributes on my menu where I, I featured some some great drinks and and listed the you know the inventor, creator, whatever you want to call it. I don't I don't think of it as an art as much as I do as a craft. So uh, and they're recipes, you know. After all, they're not works of art. <laughs> That's right. We ju- we just had the folks from Pouring wi- Ribbons on, and uh, they they had mentioned that they had a uh, a tribute cocktail as, as well. Uh, one thing I did want to to ask you about is the effect of um, a, a huge amount of new artisanal spirits. Uh, there's especially here in in New York, we we try to use as many local spirits as possible. It really goes along with uh, that what we do in the restaurants in terms of food. Um, I my my personal feeling is that some of our New York whiskeys aren't aren't yet ready ready aged enough, uh, and in a few years they will be there. Um, but certainly we have some interesting gins and and vodka and and other things that that don't have to be aged quite so long. What do you, what have you found is the uh, the effect of this? movement towards uh, small batch distilling and there being many more spirits available to, to bartenders and how that's affecting the cocktail world? It's, it's, um, well, it's astounding how many spirits we do have at our, at our fingertips. I mean, there were about 1,200 uh, right around post-prohibition when, you know, we went back to drinking. Uh, there are so many. I mean, there are five times that. I mean, you know, it's just unbelievable how many. We're six, six to eight thousand spirits on the market right now. Now, as far as the artisanal things go, we all want to be locavore. We all want to support our local farmers and distillers and and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I feel that way too. There, there, you know, we have to take into consideration cost as as business people. 
and that's that's been for some small businesses a a you know an issue. Uh, you, you can put some of these on your menu, but you know the, at at forty to eighty dollars a bottle, which is where most of these fall, you really have to reflect that bottle price. And some of those bottles are not even seven fifties. You know, that's right. Uh, the, 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 at that in that cost category you're looking at super premium cocktails and you're you know you're above sixteen dollars on these cocktails so you have to be in a very particular demographic and a very particular area to be able to put throw cocktails like that on your menu uh... it's 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 a challenge for these young distillers to figure out ways to bring production costs down and i'm sure those things will happen because if you look at some of the great spirits of the world, Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, London dry gins. I mean, they're, they're available in the marketplace for a third of what these, these uh, many of these, uh, you know, artisan distilled products are. Now, you know, you see some places like New York Distilling Company, Alan Katz, he's trying to keep his prices down. He's done a pretty good job of it with his gin. Uh, smart, I think. Even if you're taking, if you've got the investment to make it happen, keep your prices down and just get the product out there with my bitters. I, I wanted, I never wanted to go above 12.95 for a 150 milliliter bottle, because I saw these bitters for 30 and 40 dollars, you know, with smaller bottles than mine. And I said, no, this is not right. You can't do this. It's not good for the bar. It's not good for business. So, I've taken a, I haven't made any money on my bitters business yet. <laughs> All right, and let's help Dale ago, make some money on his bitters business. Five years, <laughs> you know, before I saw a profit, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay to keep it in a price range that bars can afford. Right. Uh, well, as as someone who uh, who runs a couple of businesses, I I really appreciate that, uh, Dale. I any time you want to come back on the show, you are you are a hundred percent welcome as uh, as my guest. Uh, uh, I, I'm so excited. I have so much more that I would love to talk to you about. Um, unfortunately, we have just a limited amount of time, but would love to have you back. I, I sincerely mean that. Well, I feel uh, I, I, I appreciate that invitation, and I'd be happy to take you up on it. So when you get some subject that you want to want to uh, explore, and give me a call. We'll go there, and and I'm uh, delighted you gave me the opportunity to talk a little bit about my bitters as well. Thank you for that. At, absolutely. Never hurts business. <laughs> I promise you, I am going to I am going to uh, purchase a bottle of bitters, and I'm going to work on a tiki style drink. And uh, and I'm gonna to share my results with people because <laughs> I, like I put I put all my results up on uh, kingcocktail.com mm-hmm. on my bitters page. I've got recipes from around the world, so if you want to get a little inspiration, you could go to kingcocktail.com and you'll see on the bitters page lots and lots of recipes that have been sent in to me from literally bartenders around the world that I'm just listing. So oh, that, that's fantastic! See how they're using the, the because so many cocktails are are based on on the work of someone else, and it's just making a little adjustment, making it your own. Uh, so that's going to be a really useful place for me to start. Uh, sure, there are five basic sauces in in, in the culinary world, and, and if you want to think about it, we have our basic sauces in the in the uh, in the bar world, and that's a conversation for another radio show. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks again, Dale. I also wanted to thank uh, one of our listeners, Bill Hansen. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for listening. Uh, really, really appreciate it. I, I know that you uh, you left us a little note on. Uh, on our Lepicho 
uh, OpenTable or Yelp. Uh, anyway, I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and uh, hope to hope that you continue to uh, to listen in the future. So, thanks to everyone else as well. This has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 